Theory of Religion contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Theory of Religion. Hello, heresy enthusiasts everywhere. My name is Phil. Welcome to the Fury of the Legion podcast. Regular listeners may have already realized that something's a little bit different. Alex isn't here tonight. Gotta tell you, as somebody who's had many years of staring blankly at a wall and talking myself in the dark, I feel like uh, my time has come. Like I've been uh, in psychopath boot camp for so long and now I'm at Psychopath Olympics. <laughs> but for real, this is, uh, yeah, my first time, so gonna do my best. Just hanging out with my dog Sunday tonight, and uh, yeah, I hope whatever you're up to, you're having a good time. For people who are painting, pretty jealous, man. I haven't picked up a paintbrush in a while. And uh, if you're driving to work right now, not so jealous. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, first up, I thought we might chat a little bit about what's been coming out of the Mothership recently. And uh, apart from the errata that came out not so long ago, which I actually managed to miss initially, um, I'm sure other podcasts and channels have chatted about that ad nauseum, so I won't really bother. But, um, yeah, recently the Land Raider Proteus pre-order has been announced which um gotta say i'm pretty excited about that it's uh it's something i'll be getting a couple of that's for sure it was one of the inspirations for my current army i really wanted to have heaps of dark angels pouring out of proteuses and yeah gunning fools down so i'll be looking to get a couple of those to complement my two spartans it's definitely my favorite heresy vehicle such a iconic silhouette such a brutal design i love how it calls back to world war one style tanks but gives it that future grim dark vibe very cool also shared recently in a preview is the uh clade adamus assassin which is a reimagining of the classic Imperial Assassin model from circa 1917, and it's uh, I think it's kind of split people. I think it's pretty rad. It's um, it's definitely very ninja-y, and you know all of them have that ninja vibe to them. But this one is particularly ninjery, and uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a very cool sculpt, and uh, it's um, it may even end up on. A table near me very soon depending on what the rules are like and uh, depending what other assassin options there are for talons because uh, i'm starting a small zm talons list working on it with my partner she's uh, she's into the sisters of silence and uh, yeah i think the assassins might be a nice compliment to that because she's not the hugest fan of the chunky gold boys so yeah fingers crossed that's something that that is possible, otherwise it's going to be uh, a lot of power sword wielding and flamer wielding ladies, which is actually pretty cool. Looking forward to getting the Talons book, actually. Not sure when it's coming out. 
but I'll be getting a couple of protesters once they come out to finish rounding out my Dark Angels army and uh, probably some Inner Circle and I'll probably call it a day on that project I reckon. So uh, next up I thought I might chat a little bit about the last ZM game that I played which was uh, actually with Alex and uh, you're going to get the completely unbiased equal fair news version from yours truly. <laughs> no, it, was, it was a good game, it was interesting. Um, I was playing my Dark Angels as the Defender in the mission that I wrote. I, I'll actually share that in the, in the notes again. And uh, Alex was playing Night Lords as the Incursors. And uh, yeah, the Dark Angels managed to repel the Night Lords. Um, uh, there was a little bit of luck involved. Um, initially, Alex was super aggressive. His Assault Marines and a lightning claw, double lightning claw, um, Delegatus, first turn charged my Terminator command squad with a Cataphracty Delegatus with Tyrannic Greatsword, and I managed to get a super clutch falling back reaction as part of the charge. So, for those who don't know, when you're being charged, you can do a reaction where you take a leadership test. If you pass, then you can't be... Um, you're basically fearless if you lose combat. And if you don't roll your leadership, then you fall back D6 inches and then automatically regroup, which is actually often the better of the two options. Uh, and that's what I got. Which, uh, which didn't matter necessarily because he had assault marines and, you know, they get plus two to their charge and, you know, he, had a, he, he rolled really high anyway. But it did mean that I was able to channel his models in such a way that maybe not all of them got a chance to have their strikes. And it did also mean that his Delegatus was out of the fight unless he challenged with it and I accepted and I did accept, because I had a cataphracty, um, one of the cataphracty guys had a thunder hammer, so I thought that would be pretty likely to be able to take out his warlord, which it did actually, so that was good. And yeah, so they, that unit got routed, and obviously being a cataphracty command squad, I didn't, I wasn't able to run him down, and they got away, but they were pretty much boned after that. And that was one of two of his line units. The other one was a recon squad that had chainswords instead of bolters and they were quite aggressively um, outflanked near a fairly tooled out vet squad that I was running. I was running Pride of the Legion and yeah that he, he managed to move away from me um, as a movement reaction in response to some shooting uh, from my Dreadnought, but that actually put him in position to get heavily flamed by the one of Flamer in my vet squad, so that worked out pretty well. And, uh, yeah, on the topic of the old one of Flamer, it's not something that I usually heaps love in big games, but tell you what, like, for two points, pretty bloody good in ZM. It's effectively a heavy Flamer. And wall of death reactions when people move within 
eight inches of you is a really good threat. Getting D3 auto hitting strength five shots is wonderful. And yeah, it makes me think that pyroclasts are going to rule the roost. So look out for those Sally's players. But yes, for the rest of the game, um, it was, yeah, it got a little bit um, one-sided in terms of victory points. Like he had, he had some other units surviving, but because I managed to make his line units either run away or actually his recon marines ended up running off the table, um, he, he couldn't score after that. So it was practically game over. And uh, yeah, we both learned quite a lot from that. And yeah, it'd be interesting if he didn't get... Sorry, if I hadn't been lucky enough to fall back, um, he might have managed to potentially even kill the command squad, um, but it would have been almost mutually assured destruction, and I had another squad of Terminators nearby to clean it up anyway. So he possibly would have been better off to just use the extra range of the... Sorry, extra movement speed of the assault marines to go and score an objective for a while and then try and soften me up with his uh, Terminators, the special Night Lords ones, which are called Contenka. Yes. And he, he had six of those, so he was able to outnumber, because they're bulky, he was able, able to outnumber any of my units, which means he was always going to be wounding on twos, pretty much. Um, so yeah, he probably could have softened me up a little bit with some of those. I think the main takeaway from me, for anybody who's you know, looking to learn a little bit about list building for themselves, is that it feels like at 1,000 points on a 3x3, which is about as small as you want to go for 1,000 points, and for this mission specifically, which has three objectives, you probably want three line units, um, or you want your two line units to not be as frontline combat focused, which, uh, you know, if you can keep them out of the fight while you're using your more expendable non-scoring units, I think that's probably the way to go. We also learned that Thunderhammer's fucking rule. It is hammer time, bitches. Um, potentially they're too good. Um, I think my initial reading of them, I was like, oh yeah, Brutal 2, cool. It's basically damage 2 in um, 40k. So if a wound goes through, isn't saved, you take two wounds instead of one, right? But the fact that you have to roll your saves for both of them, so if you wound somebody with one hit, they have to roll two saves. Now that's only... I mean, it's amazing, full stop, but it's particularly good against anything you're instant deathing because that's twice the amount of opportunities. So even a cataphracty only has like a, you know, a quarter chance of actually surviving. So it's it's pretty brutal. We, uh, we're actually chatting about how they could have potentially toned it down because it may be that Thunder Hammers are just the best weapon in the game. Uh, obviously, they're not hitting at initiative, but yeah, two, putting two hits, sorry, two wounds on Dreadnoughts pretty well, pretty frequently, and murdering most characters that aren't, you know, some Eternal Warrior or Toughness 5, it makes them really consistent. 
And yeah, we were thinking maybe you could even give them the, the plasma treatment. So keep the Brutal 2, lose the AP2, and go to AP4 breaching 4+, which is still really good, right? So like, I think, you know, if you feel like toning it down, um, maybe, yeah, try it out, see how it goes, get back to me. Completely untested and just just, just throwing a thought out there, but... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty easy way of mushing any multi-wound model. And with vets looking as good as they do, um, and, you know, everyone having to take characters, if you can take a cheeky Thunderhammer, pretty, pretty incentivized to do that. Which was definitely something I learned when I played Sam, who was playing Breachers, and found out that Breacher Sergeants can take a Thunderhammer. That makes them... Terrifying. The other thing we've sort of come to the conclusion of is that in a setting like ZM where you're guaranteed to have combat, weapon skill 5, man, that's where you want to be. Don't send your noobs into the zone mortalis. They get fucked up. It's, uh, it's just straight up like an armor save. So take some good dudes or take heaps of low quality guys uh, and try and focus on shooting because if you're getting into combat and you don't have weapon skill 5 against something weapon skill 5 if they have like any way of getting through your armor you're just gonna lose a lot of dudes and you only have to lose combat to get overrun you don't have to kill, get all your units killed so think about it <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to chat about and uh, I have no idea how long this will take because I've just been just been thinking about it is uh yeah a little bit I want to talk a little bit about how heresy is being supported at the moment and uh, and maybe what that means about how Games Workshop views the whole product line if you will and uh you know what that means in terms of how we play the game and how we're going to have to approach it moving forward so uh, it's obviously still very early days, um, but we, we just got an errata. Uh, and if I compare the errata that we just got, which was, you know, it wasn't perfect. It touched, it cleaned up a, a few, you know, uh, writing mistakes and a few omissions like twin link guns, et cetera, et cetera. It, um, it was not a rebalancing. This was a tidy up of language. Uh, and some maybe, you know, slightly more confusing language for some things. But if I compare that to <laughs> their response, and I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but at the moment, as of now, the, they've basically lost their fucking shit about the Space Dwarves for 40k, I can't remember, Legion of Voltaren or whatever the hell they are. And uh, to the point where <laughs> if, you ta if you bought the Codex, you can take it back into... So I think the codex only come, comes in a box set. You can take it back and get a refund because they have so heavily errated it as to make the original product non-viable, which is mind-blowing. As somebody who's been playing Games Workshop games for like the last several centuries, it's, uh, it's, it's almost unheard of that you'd be getting a refund because 
because they've said that the book is, you know, fucked. It was it was broken. It was too strong, apparently, which is crazy. So they're really on top of 40K and they're really worried about balance. And that's also borne out by the fact that they're doing lots of points reshuffling. Uh, I think it's quarterly. And um, their, their emphasis is on it as a competitive product. Now, I don't think that Games Workshop considers the Heresy to be a tournament game, which is good, because neither do we, for the most part. Like, at least in the circles I've run in and everything I've heard, there is the occasional, quote-unquote, competitive event. But mostly it's narrative, right? Or it's like friendly home games or whatever. And what that means to me is that we probably can't expect to have heaps and heaps of rebalancing. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's time to play more games and get some information and some, have some honest conversations about what units are really good like what's broken there's obviously always shit that's broken that's just how war games go and uh you know what units are lacking and then have some you know informed conversations when we step up to a table about trying to achieve the kind of game that we want to play you know it's a it's the classic turn zero conversation what did you bring? What did I bring? How brutal is it? Is there any way we can tone it down or boost yours up so that we can have a game that's, you know, you're never going to get perfect balance, but you don't, nobody enjoys being steamrolled. So it's, it's not clear to me yet exactly how quickly, if ever, Games Workshop will do a balance pass. And like I, you know, there are there are a couple of units that maybe stick out a little bit, but um, I suspect they don't think it's needed because it's not a competitive game, which means, as it was in times of yore, in our long storied history, uh, we're going to have to self-regulate, and uh, and hell, even if Games Workshop does do a balance pass, there's still going to be winners and losers, which means we're still going to have to have these conversations. So yeah, let's get out there and have some, you know, uh, relaxed <laughs> and unemotional discussions about what's really good and what's kind of shit. And, you know, let's see if we can't encourage a healthy, balanced meta. You know, we all want to play our cool shit, but it's never fun to get rolled. And honestly, it's no fun to roll anyone either. But, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. So just have have conversations with each other. And, uh, yeah, there's no sheep stations. That we're, not, we're not fighting for trophies. No one's taking a medal home. Nobody's getting, you know, sexual favors, hopefully, from winning or losing. So, you know, let's find out what's too good and, uh, you know, be mature about it. The other thing I wanted to talk about was a little thought that I've been having, and I think 
you know, a bunch of people have had this niggling concern as the heresy has progressed. But uh, it just sort of occurred to me that, you know, will the end of the novels kill heresy? Or, you know, will they even dampen the mood a little bit? So when we started this whole heresy journey years back, um, the game that is, the novels were still chugging along, no end in sight. And yeah, major things happened, and characters died or transformed and worlds were burned and, you know, the whole endgame aspect, the whole Titanic sinking over there on the horizon was, you know, just that. It was way over there. And we were, we were all engaged in this process of filling out the story. And it was exciting. You know, it was this nearly endless space between some key points, admittedly. But, you know, it, you're, it didn't affect your army. You know, your army could look almost the same pre and post Isfahan. Uh, almost, you know, or you could, you could make it in such a way that it noted, you know, some events that happened between Isfahan and the siege. But for the most part, pre and, you know, just before the heresy and during the heresy, things can look pretty much the same. And so I feel like as we were filling out that endless space, in a strange way, it, it kind of made it feel like you know, as the novels were coming out, we we're in this present, this current, despite being like future historical, shit was happening right now and we were living in it. And in a lot of ways, the story updated way more than 40K had for decades. And it was mostly really damn satisfying, uh, which we can't really say for 40K fluff-wise anyway. Uh, and so like, I feel like as a community, we were all excited and we were chatting and talking about things being revealed and like, you know, and things happening to our favorite characters and Primarchs and whatever. And, and that got to live, you know, it got to emerge in our armies. And so like the explanations for things and like, uh, were while they were emerging thick and fast, all these revelations, it was like a real living narrative, which is inspiring. And for me, at least, uh, and I think for others, this was like a really great environment for motivation. And it was really cool to feel part of this buzz, this, uh, this like shared storytelling. And like, yeah, I mean, most of us weren't writing stories in the heresy. Like we're not, most of us are authors or, you know, uh, even narrative event creators, which I would argue are just as like important, if not more so in some ways than most many of the novels. Um, but, you know, we all contributed to this sort of communal storytelling with our armies, which, uh, you know, uh, and they were mostly fully painted, right? Which is mind-blowing and, and usually great terrain, also mind-blowing considering the state of most wargaming events is, you know, gray plastic on pretty bare ass terrain and you know our events reflected it as well like i said before narrative events event series that spanned years that are still going like this is 
like some rich and elaborate community storytelling. And uh, I'm a bit worried for it. I mean, this was a living world that sort of inspired and demanded a certain level of hobby, for example. Uh, and yeah, that was some of that was also people being vo- very vocal about it. But it felt right that you should be making an army that told a story and that was, you know, that was consistent with what we were all reading you know, or listening to. And uh, and so when you've when you've shared a story like that where everyone is invested everyone's invested in either you know their legion or a faction or a character uh you know the game itself whilst fun it, it wasn't even necessarily the most important thing a lot of the time and you're like that's that's clear from the fact that the rules went unfixed for years at a time often uh, i mean not to speak of recently where we've already gotten errata within you know was it six months but it didn't matter that because the rules were really secondary to this whole exciting experience of this, you know, unpacking of this future history that of a game that we all grew up with, which is, you know, 40K. This was the, the pre-40K and it made it special. And like, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but like the most important of that I keep keep trying to like emphasize is that these narrative events and event series kept us engaged in our own world in between the more important, you know, the beginning and the end, somewhere in that vast space, we could have our own unfolding drama and it felt like it mattered. And I, and at least to my knowledge, pretty much all narrative events live in that space between the start of the heresy and before the siege and like the the setting and this is how the novels got so prolific in that sort of big middle section the galaxy is huge and the factions are all huge lots of things can and did happen so you can write plots that feel you know for an event you can write plots that have things happening on a massive scale and it feels impactful and contributive to this whole, you know, universal law. But, you know, even though the, the, what happened in those events won't actually contribute to the Titanic sinking, because we all know what happens, you know, it still didn't feel pointless. It felt, you know, like you were doing, you were part of something real, like some sort of narrative realness. It was really cool. Uh, and this is with, you know, people from no one from Forge World or Games Workshop even necessarily noticing what what's going on. This is running hand in hand with, but basically parallel to the mainstream narrative. And yet, in a lot of ways, it was what helped to uh, inspire us to paint stuff, to play games, events going to events. I mean, how many of us have had like, you know, two weeks before an event, a fucking mad dash to get a couple of units done so that you weren't the guy or girl or whatever with an unpainted army. Like nobody wants to be that. All right. So like 
this narrative aspect doesn't isn't like necessarily going away. We, I mean, we can always make more events in this space between Alpha and Omega. But I feel like as we get closer, and I mean, we're in the siege right now, as we close in on the Titanic sinking, and as the heresy starts drawing to a close and we transition into the scouring and basically, what, like pre-40K? I I don't know how we're going to describe it, I guess. (laughs) Post-heresy? I mean, it feels like as that gets closer... In some ways, a lot of that like creative space and that sort of endless potential is uh, not disappearing, but it feels like maybe it's starting to fall into the past. I know it's obviously a future past, but it, instead of it feeling like something we're living through at the moment, once the siege has happened, that that little time bubble has gone past where we've been living and gaming for the last, what, decade? And then it actually becomes more like reenacting, like an actual historical game, reenacting old events. I mean, you can still have an Istvan 3 themed thing, but like, instead of it being something that everybody is on board with right at this time, because that's where, you know, the time stick is. It's, uh, it's the quote-unquote past. And I mean, like, reenacting stu- old stuff is great, of course. And, like, you can set your narrative events in the same old sandbox that we've been doing forever. But, you know, people will, will have started mentally, if not literally physically, making models that are transitioning through the siege and beyond it. And so that, that feels like... <laughs> I don't know, we've left the Wild West from between Isfan and Terra. And as we do that, I feel like it's going to be tougher to get people excited for doing events before Terra. I mean, what do you, what do, you do? Do you turn up with a, a, a fully corrupted Siege of Terra Nurgle army to a Isfan event? I mean, it's just, it just doesn't necessarily work, does it? And so then you start getting this fracturing, this era fracturing, which is something that I think a lot of people have been concerned about for a long time. And honestly, it's probably why 40K didn't progress for the longest time. They didn't want to split the player base. I mean, we're looking at a situation where we, we can have like early crusade we could have early crusade, early heresy, mid heresy, late heresy, siege, which is kind of its own thing, scouring, post scouring. I mean, even if it's just, you know, even if the, the cutoff point is everything leading up to the siege and then everything after the siege that's still, you know, heresy ish, those are quite distinct things. So, I mean, I'm sure people will get excited to do a Siege of Terror-themed army. Like, it sounds sounds rad, right? But, you know, once the story's finished, I mean, how many, how many Siege of Terror narrative events can you go to and remain excited about the concept? 
I mean, one, two, three, I don't know. Like, could you do a series? Maybe you could. Uh, and when the series finally wraps up, I mean, you couldn't do this for years, right? Because it's playing out a single battle, no matter how large, like you can only do it for so long. Whereas when we were still in the Wild West, the middle bit, it had infinite possibilities. And I, I kind of miss that already in some ways. So like once, once these siege armies and then the scouring armies start being more populous, you know, are those people going to want to play mid or early era events? You know, uh, I don't know. I mean, will people even, I mean, will people give them shit for it if they do? Using units or paint styles or, you know, full on demonic shit that didn't exist. You know, is it going to, I mean, most people probably won't care, but on, you know, if... If one of the coolest things for the longest time was that we were engaged in this collective storytelling and our models were like lovingly crafted to represent that, you know, when, if half the models on the battlefield are from 200 years or a hundred years in the future, you know, can you, does that break our immersion too much? Like what's, how elastic is that immersion? So, I don't know, I, I feel like maybe maybe it really depends on how long the siege can be milked for. Um, but I, I think maybe a good, or maybe a little bit sad, analogy might be the end times of fantasy. And uh, does anybody play end times? Look, I know it's not a, a perfect analogy, because, you know, unlike with the siege and the death of Horus and the Emperor being interred on the golden throne the end times wasn't something set in stone that everybody knew before they went in you know this wasn't a capstone that you were expecting it was you know but it is a capstone right and like it's something a massive event that resulted in a drastic change death of key figures different units you know, even that the end times itself had different units that are specific to that little window of time that aren't really seen prior. So then you start having people who have armies that have end times stuff in it. And yeah, maybe all of it's, I mean, not that Age of Sigmar is fantasy, but you know, maybe all of it can be used in fantasy, but then, you know, do the fantasy... And the Age of Sigma guys play together? I don't think so. So even though it's, you know, a lot of the same models, you're basically having an era split there. And yeah, people still play fantasy, but, you know, the narrative story arc has moved forward into a different future and people are, are there now. You know, even though fantasy is still played, it's, it's hardly like a flagship product. It's not even supported. It's, it's a, you know, a reasonably small but dedicated group of people. Um, and, you know, maybe that's what heresy has in store for us, is that we keep it alive by, you know, with the, the diehard core of people who want to keep playing in that, you know, Wild West zone between the start and the end. And the people who do play fantasy... 
they they situated in this time agnostic middle era and you know it's kind of like the eternal frozen present that 40k used to live in and yeah obviously the end times is not a perfect analogy and there's lots of baggage around it but i feel like it would be a shame maybe if that happened to heresy i'm not sure that the the community is big enough to have two factions like two different two different camps the old and the new as it were so you know even if and if it does result in a split hopefully each community can thrive um the scouring is a cool setting you know post post heresy heresy is still very cool and most of the shit is still relevant but um you know or early 40k or whatever we want to call it uh, and I'm sure there's lots of stories that we can tell there. And I'm, you know, hopefully we can keep it all going. And it, it's just a shame that in some ways, if the siege never came, you could probably keep doing heresy forever. It's just so huge. The galaxy is so huge. Once you have the siege, I don't know, maybe the scouring could be done forever as well. So maybe it's just a, a case of shifting the mindset and, and leaning into a basically a 40k situation, but like without Xenos and with, you know, heresy units. Yeah. And no Primaris. I mean, it's not the, it's not the worst place to end up in, but I don't know, you know, <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what happens. So yeah, that's my little rambly stream of consciousness take on whether or not the novels will, the end of the novels will kill the game. Yeah, hopefully there isn't a big old psychic backlash in the wake of the <laughs> the heresy novels ending, and hopefully we don't give birth to a a terrible demon, something akin to you know, Age of Sigma for fantasy. And I just hope that for the people who keep this heresy narrative focus alive, the people who are making events, I just hope for them that it's that they can continue to be inspired and that we can find different ways to play with our cool mandolies and, you know, different avenues of this massive story to explore all right well i'm all out of gas so that's me thanks very much for for hanging in there with me and uh, hopefully we'll be back to regular scheduled listening soon if you've got any questions you can contact us on facebook we have a facebook group called fury of the legion podcast we're also on Discord. Uh, if you're on the Victorian Heresy Discord, you can contact us via that. Uh, it's it's fairly quiet there at the moment, but you know, hit us up if you want to talk about anything online, or if you even just want to have your list critiqued by a couple of grognards, we're happy to do it. If you want to contact us via via digital snail mail, our Gmail. Email is fotl.podcast at gmail.com. 
So again, thanks very much for hanging in there with me and uh, keep it heretical, everyone. <laughs>